Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Zoltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. Every time I say that, I'm like, we don't really do that much tech. But we would if you sent it to us. There's not that much like public you tech. You know, I have, I have a poll that the Nielsen folks put out months ago mm. that they are going to come. There is a guy from Nielsen who's going to come on the trend line this week to talk oh, about okay. it, about where millennials get their news and tech. So it's kind of techy, but I, like weirdly, a lot of polling on that stuff. Even though we think of tech as being like super fast and innovative, I actually feel like polling about tech is always super dated by the time we get it. Mm. As well, a result, well, we did talk about the, that tech poll months ago. About tech is not just like social media, tech jobs, or all kinds of jobs. Anyway, all right, so. Every time I say that, I'm like, we need to do more tech and more pop culture. But maybe that's not this week. Oh, but, uh, we do lots of pop culture. <laughs> it's just that the pop culture polls we use are just methodological trash. <laughs> it's fine. It's yeah, fine. somebody, uh, I was talking to somebody and I was like rolling with all their pop culture references and I was feeling really proud of myself until they got to some part where they said something about Justin Bieber and I was like... Oh. This is where I need Kristen. This is where the I need to text Kristen to say, "Quick, who is the? I need. Please help me." He just got married to Alec Baldwin's daughter. What? Yeah, that wasn't even the thing. But she's a model. Now. It's a thing. They met at a. They're part of a church in Los Angeles that a lot of celebrities have been going to. This is Bieber. Bieber 4.0 is like evangelical Christian Bieber, and huh. so yeah, they got married. And, that, well, and then that's why they were on I the guess. cover of Vogue, I think, the last month. It was like a whole thing. Okay, I'm so I, I, there's a lot apparently. <laughs> I still don't know about Justin Bieber, but anyway, what's I, I prefer the music of Bieber 3.0. That was my my favorite <laughs> iteration of, sure. of of the Biebs. They all they all kind of sound the same to me. Well, this week, what we learned: top lines. We have two nuclear powers in conflict. We have Trump coming home from a summit with Kim Jong. Un and Michael Cohen testified, and we're not actually going to talk about polling about any of those things. No. Uh, we might talk a little Michael Cohen, yes. um, but we are going to talk about the Manafort sentencing memo. Apparently, there were 75 pages of polling data shared with Konstantin Kalimnik. Is that a lot we, or a little? Is it a lot or a little? We will speculate wildly. Then we'll do a 2020 Dem deep dive. What is the status of the Dem field? Then has there been a shift in attitudes on abortion or the labels of pro-life and pro-choice. We will talk about a new poll that had recently made some headlines and reasons to believe or not believe that this poll shows a real shift. And then finally, just go ahead and take a nap after the show is done. Don't nap during the show. I hope you're more engaged than that. But we have some polling (laughs) on where people are able to fall asleep. There are some podcasts I listen to explicitly... Oh, yeah. For night, night time. And mm-hmm. um, that just like gently provide me some education on my way off to dream town. But I don't know if the pollsters serves that role for anybody. For, there was for some reason an episode of the substandard, may it rest in peace, 
now the 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 pod- there, well, I'm not following what's going. I'm following that slightly more than I'm following Justin Bieber. There's like some shakeup in like the Republican media world. Oh, like the Weekly Standard died like months ago, Margie. Like it doesn't. But exist there's anymore. like a new thing that was announced today. Uh, but it's not actually a thing yeah. yet. And like the bulwark, I don't know what is. I don't know what the difference between all. They all sound like I wish them all good. Godspeed and sort of being the kind of refuge against Trump on the right. I think, but I don't know exactly the where they all are. And there is never Trump, right? And, and I thing? think the, co- the 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 Jonah Goldberg Steve Hayes thing is going to be Trump skeptical. It will be remnanty. If you, I wrote that column about the four types of Republican you meet in the swamp. That I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bulwark is more aiming for that never Trump. The fourth, the the fourth bucket of people, and I think on the spectrum, the the new Jonah Goldberg thing is going at bucket three. Okay, the like Trump skeptical, but sometimes he does things we like. We're not just going to be defined by what we're against. Okay, but we'll see. We'll see. I don't okay. know. Okay, all right. Anyhow, all of which Sorry. is to say, there was an episode of the podcast formerly known as the Sub Yes Standard. I forget what movie it was about, and I loved that podcast so much, and I I never listened to it all the way through because I would listen to it on planes and I would, yes. it would knock me out at like minute 25. Yes. There was like a code word they would say and I would just like, <laughs> boom, yes. I would black out. Yes. So, yeah. But now all those episodes are gone because the archives got Well, you can just listen to the, oh, yes. from the internet with the death of the Weekly Standard. That's so bad. my the podcast, the narcolepsy inducing podcast Maybe there's some sort of like gone, bit so. or whatever, whatever the kids oh, use where you can. I believe there is an underground way for me to get them. But <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about it too much on okay. the record. It's, uh, it's, it's keep it on the hush. Fair enough. <laughs> we can get your free, your old free content <laughs> old also for free. free content also for free. Uh, sure. Pat circulating it like Samizdat <laughs> literature during the Cold War in Eastern Europe. Um, okay, quick check in. President's job approval. It has sort of stabilized. His gains have stopped. His post, his post ending, his post post shutdown gains have stopped his job approval sitting 43.9% as of press time. So, But what does it mean? I mean, it means the same thing it meant the last time it was at 44%. But why is it it's still there? It's bad in context historically. It's good for him in terms right, of his right, right, presidency. Right, right, okay, yes. It's still. So, you know, here yes. we go. It is what it is. It's still, it's in the same narrow band. Volatile times, stable job yeah. approval rating. One of the big stories in the last week was the sentencing memo that was handed down by the Mueller folks about Paul Manafort outlining his alleged misdeeds and why they would like him to spend some time in prison. And one of the things that I was really looking for was, you may recall a couple months ago, Manafort's attorneys filed a document that was improperly redacted like they had tried to redact things by making text like with a like black text on a black background but electronically you can just highlight that text and Mm. copy it without the black background and surprise you can read it so they did not redact it properly which revealed that one of the things Manafort was being accused of lying about to the feds was that he claimed he had not provided some uh, basically he was he was being accused of having provided some kind of polling information to Konstantin Kalimnik, a former colleague of his who is believed potentially of ties to Russian intelligence. This raised a lot of alarm bells because wait a minute, why would the Trump campaign manager be sharing polling data with some Russian 
dude. And there was a lot of speculation, and we talked on the show about what are the circumstances under which it would be normal, abnormal but not criminal, or like criminally bad to be sharing polling data in that sort of a situation. Right. And that the most benign explanation was that Manafort was sending kind of outdated, kind of useless-ish top lines of nothing to prove to an old buddy, oh, look how in the know I am. Please don't make me pay back all this money I owe you. Like, <clears throat> to try to show off how influential he was. Right. And then, like, the the least charitable explanation is he's sharing strategic information with Russian intelligence because he'd like to collude. So that's the full spectrum, right? right. So I was waiting for the sentencing memo to come out to give us more insights on like what what do they think Manafort gave? Was right. it, you know, five pages of top lines? Was it some to the cross tabs? <clears throat> or was it like an in-depth thing? Yes. And the sentencing memo cites an exhibit 233, which is 75 pages. And that is supposedly the polling information that was allegedly shared. Right. So 75 pages, when you hear that, what does that sound like it means to So you? that sounds like a set of it sounds like two things. Seventy-five pages could be a very short set of cross tabs, mm-hmm. or it could be a kind of long, but not out of the realm of normal PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, it is not a set of top lines. I suppose it could be a report if you had done a variety of different kinds of things. You could write a seventy-five page report that had like appendices and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it I, could I wouldn't, be. I wouldn't. I would usually not do a 75-page report. Uh, Having done them before, do not recommend. (laughs) Do not recommend. No one reads them. (laughs) That would be called the selfie vote. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only that was 70. If the selfie vote had been 75 pages, I could have knocked that out of my sleep. Uh, I would have, my mental health in November of 2014 would have been a lot better. Um, Yeah, that that was sort of my thought. was like, it sounds too short to be cross tabs. And it sounds... Too long to be top lines unless it was like, here's top lines from Wisconsin. Here's top lines right. from Michigan. Or here's like top my pagination's line. kind of off, and I have one question on one page. And you yeah, know, they could have used big open font end sizes. Co- co- I mean, there's the, all of that, right? Different firms also use different cross tab styles. Although yes. I believe that the firm that did the polling in this instance does cross tabs in the same way that Echelon does them. or horizontally? No, they do not do them vertically. I think like on the Republican side, I think Terrence is the pollster that does them vertically. Mm-hmm. We, Echelon does them horizontally and I believe the pollster f- on the Trump folks. You do them horizontally. Yes. yes. We do them vertically. Wait. Hang on. I, I, I'm talking about, oh no, maybe it is vertical. The the rows are the question answers. Are you and talking, the, are your pages... When you print them out, are you printing them out landscape, landscape. or portrait? Landscape. Yes. So we do them the same way. No, we do them vertically. We, oh. Portrait. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys do them the way Terrence does them. Then. It was a shift <clears> for <throat> me, I have to say. I mean, I've never said this to anybody. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to look at them vertically. Okay, that's cool. I'm cool. <laughs> I believe these I admit were it, This landscape. is breaking news. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pages. So yeah, font size, pagination, yeah. these are all. But... To me, it sounds like it's probably not crosstabs. I mean, it could be. From the world, from a very short. I mean, it could be. It certainly could be. A 75-page crosstab book has a lot less useful information than a 75-page slide deck. Yes. Is sort of my point. That's true. The page numbers give us, it narrows the possibilities of what was 
allegedly shared, but it doesn't necessarily tell us how much useful information was conveyed because there are ways 75 pages of polling data is a boatload of strategically valuable stuff. And there's a way to do 75 pages of polling that's like, you know, like the pages of the phone book. Right. You're, you might have 75 phone book pages where you only need two numbers right. off those pages. Right. So we just, we still don't it know. It could be tracking. I suppose you could have 75 sure. pages of tracking, which mm-hmm. is looking at how things have changed over time. And supposedly these were, and that it would was be quite data a bit of from before the Republican convention. It was mm-hmm. supposedly from before all of that. Right. So, so probably not. Tra- so, prob- so perhaps not tracking. Probably not tracking. I, so, anyhow, it 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 minimally narrows the possibilities of what was shared. It suggests that it was more than just, "Hey, here's a five-page memo." What if it was seventy-five my- pages of written responses from from focus groups? <laughs> 75 pages of verbatim? Yes. Oh, that's a possibility I did not consider. That that could be like the open ends to a question. Exactly. Huh? Well, I wonder. Like, what kind of car do you think Donald Trump is? You know, we may never find out unless this leaks. Somebody would like to leak it. I'm not saying that we're asking people to leak things that they shouldn't leak, but I'm just, I'm curious. I would love to know. Would love to know. Even if you redact out the numbers, like I don't even care. I don't. I don't care what the numbers are. I mean, it'd be interesting to know. I just want to know. Like, is it top lines or is it a deck? Just so tell you just me. Just want to know the answer <laughs> to the closed-ended question of what is in it. What is what's in the seventy-five pages? Okay, I have to know. I have to know. So this is this is the one big question still hanging. Yeah, it was head. like your. You know, it was a. It was the tweet I saw from you that like actually. I saw multiple times. It clearly made an impact. <laughs> You're <laughs> hypothesizing about it. made an impact. Well, let's talk for a second now about we've got some polling from Morning Consult that has tried to go into the 2020 field. Margie, what's going on with the Democrats in 2020? Well, so, um, you know, they had. So, I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, I, I'm going to continue to say the thing I've been saying now for a while, which is still the polls suggest a wide open field. I think from a polling perspective, what Morning Consult's trying to do a little bit differently is trying to ask some questions beyond the head to head. Well, I guess it's not head to head. It's head to head to head to head, right? Behind, besides the open, you know, a, a, the way you ask the vote question, which is obviously, I think you know, is is going to continue to show the same thing and will depend on what other candidates are announced or included in the question, how the question's asked. So what Morning Consul and Politico did is they said, how strong of an opinion do you have about the, you know, who you're going to vote for? Do you know yet? Do you feel strongly about who you're going to vote for? And about um, three in 10, just slightly fewer than that, said that they've they have a strong opinion. And, you know, that doesn't seem like a lot. Um, it, I, I think it's certain to change. And again, this is national. So this is going to you know, change depending on what happens in the early states. And it's based on self-report, whether or not people are going to be um, Democratic primary voters, which is different than uh, the rules in various states, as we've talked about before. Um, and then they also asked an, another question. Let me pull it up. They asked another question about like, how would you feel if certain candidates were the nominees, would you be excited to vote for them or would you want to vote for somebody else? And that came up with a different answer altogether. And they didn't ask that for everybody. They only asked that question about Biden and Sanders. Is it because they're the ones with really high name ID? I mean, 
Because that's why I mean when I'm when assuming, we look or it could at the, just be or it could be a space issue, right? Yep. I mean, that's always that's the thing with the field when you have these media outlets are trying to figure out, you know, how to ask it and how to ask these questions and you know and I, I think it makes sense to at, you know, I can see how you'd make some decisions based on space on how many times you ask that question, but it also could be based on hard ID. So there's, you know, they have this question where they ask people, what's your second choice? Again, for Biden supporters, their second choice is Bernie. For Sanders supporters, their second choice is Biden. For Harris supporters, the second choice is Biden and so on and so forth. Um, I, I I am trying to think like, I wish there was a way to do this. Well, one, with so many candidates in the field who have such low name ID, there is still reason to be skeptical of like, oh, this is who the second choice is. If one of these people left, this is who would migrate to whom. Like, we are so far away from the people dropping out of the race, part of the race, that the, I guess I'm, I think that's of some limited utility. I would be fascinated by like something like a conjoint analysis where you've got, okay, if your choice was between this person and this person. Who would you choose? Okay, well, what if it came down in the end to this person versus this person? And you, like, cycled through a bunch of different combinations of people rather than just saying, oh, who's your second choice? Where people will sort of, like, gravitate toward. I mean, are people, like, no matter who you put up against Kamala Harris, except for Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, they're always picking Kamala Harris or whatever. Like, that, I don't know. I feel like that would be kind of an interesting way to sift out this, like, m- massive field. Sure. But, you know, when you don't have any candidates up on the air yet and no voting has happened and the field is still not set, you know, it's like it's, you know, we simply want to know we want to know what the score is before the game has even started. And we know who the teams are. Right. So (laughs) this is they just asked us about Sanders and Biden among Democrats. Thinking about the following politicians, which statement best describes how you feel about them running for president? He's one of my top choices, and I would gladly support him in the primary. I have or I have a favorable opinion of him, but I would prefer if the Democrats nominated someone else. I would vote for him over Trump, but I'd be disappointed if he's the nominee or I'd be unlikely to support him under any circumstances. And they only asked that of two candidates of Biden and Sanders. And Biden, you had 51 percent say he's one of my top choices. Twenty five percent say I have a favorable opinion of him, but I prefer if Democrats nominate somebody else for Sanders. You have a little bit more distribution there. So you have 38 percent say He's one of my top choices, 33%. I have a favorable opinion, but I would prefer if they nominate somebody else. And then you have 15%. So twice as many say this about Sanders as about Biden say, I would vote for him over Trump, but I'd be disappointed if he was a Democrat nominee. Ah, okay. That's a good I, – I like that kind of framing of the question. I mean, it tell, look, it tells you something. It does – you know, obviously there's still, there's still so much that's going to happen that this is just kind of a – this is just some sort of early – indicator of something but yeah well i we got a long ways to go um but i'm very excited because some of the first debates are coming up right it's almost march how crazy is that it's almost march it's this is is this is barreling towards us yeah i know so yeah the first debates are coming up True, and you have to you and polling maybe part of is going to be part of the equation. Yeah, which we've talked about before. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about where voters stand on the Mueller report. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. 
Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. All right, we're back. So the rumor two weeks ago was that the Mueller report was coming out and I had to go on TV and speculate about what would happen. (laughs) And then, of course, it came out, no, the Mueller report's not coming out. I can't tell you the amount of minutes of airwave time on various TV shows that have been spent speculating on when, if, and how this report could come out. And I just... Guys, it'll come out. Something will come out eventually. And if it's not up to your satisfaction, then we can have that debate. But okay, so I'll set that aside. Uh, Overwhelmingly, the polls have shown that people think that the Mueller report should be public. Now, what I think most people don't realize is that there is not one Mueller report. There is the thing that by statute and regulation, Mueller must give to the attorney general. And then the attorney general decides how he's going to summarize that report and then present something to Congress. So the thing that Mueller writes to Barr in the law is not intended for public consumption. But there's a big push to say, well, Barr's summary better not be like a two lines cliff notes of like, uh, Mueller did stuff and found everything was fine. The end. Like, that would be bad. So... The push now is to say that whatever Mueller gives to Barr is should be, I mean, to the extent possible, redacting anything that's like national security issues should be made public. And this is kind of where the public comes down. Um, more than two thirds of voters, 68 percent, say the report, which will go first to Attorney General Barr and other DOJ officials, should be made public. Only 10 percent say it shouldn't be. And 22 percent are undecided. Democrats, 79 percent are more likely to say the reports should be released. Surprise. But a majority of Republicans, 59 percent also think Mueller's report should be public. I think there's like a thing. Well, first of all, I think that's good that there's some bipartisan agreement, so to speak, on this or at least more or less. Um, And it's also common when you ask about anything like should blank be public you know. No, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> Most people say, "Sure, yeah, let's." We want transparency, so there I can are some go things I don't want to know. So I can go check the record. You know, I mean, people do want to see openness, accountability, transparency. So I'm not surprised that there, you know, is a call to have this public. And there are probably Republicans also who think that the, you know, the investigation hasn't been fair and so they want to see what's been made you know they want to see it public so they can look at it and, mm-hmm. and judge for themselves there's probably an element of that majority who feels that way yeah uh, to the extent if if the trump administration is if president trump is accurate when he says there is no collusion then he should want this report to be as public as possible so he can say that it's out there that has long been my point of view like what's he hiding? What just, are you hiding? Let's just make it public. Let's yeah. just let let's let's show the people what what all of the resources that went into the Mueller investigation have right. found. If the president has nothing to hide, um, then what's he hiding? 
And and frankly, the Southern District District of New York is going to be doing its own thing anyways. So like this doesn't end with the Mueller report anyways, but that's neither here nor there. What I wonder is, okay, so we've got 59% of Republicans now saying they want it to be public. If it comes out where what Barr releases is a slimmed down summary of the report and then and Trump is like good or Trump is like no we should be whatever Trump's argument is for not not the full 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 thing coming out I would bet those numbers would change right in the same way that you had a lot of Republicans say no I don't want to use a national emergency to get the wall and as soon as Trump did suddenly the poll shifts and everyone's like uh Actually, I guess I'm kind of okay with this. I can see numbers moving again if, like, when actual actions are taken, if the report is not made public in a way that satisfies Democrats, Republicans going, oh, well, I'm actually fine with it. I'm totally fine with this Right, being the way it is. It's just negative partisanship rules everything around me. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Selfie vote (laughs) 2.0 is a much more pessimistic take. Um, uh, So, you know, the so we had a poll, I mean, to that. Right. We've talked about this before. We did it. We had a poll for the group Protect the Investigation that had Michael Cohen's favorable rating and single digits like everybody kind of in the orbit of Trump had like just single digit favorability, just unpop like the worst favorable ratings as a group of anybody I've seen. Um and so has is that gonna change as a result of what we saw in that hearing yesterday? I mean that's gonna be something T B D. So the other big poll that came out this week that made some headlines was a Marist poll that was done in partnership with the Knights of Columbus, which is a Catholic organization. Um, It was a poll on the issue of abortion. And what they find is an uptick in the percentage of Americans calling themselves pro-life, that their trend line going back quite a ways has shown typically more Americans prefer to call themselves pro-choice versus pro-life. The last data point that Marist has in their chart has by a 55 to 38 margin, people saying they prefer the label pro-choice over pro-life. But the most recent poll that they've released now has it even, 47 to 47, with 6% unsure. Um, and that that prior data point is not that long away. It's from January. So they're what they are sh- suggesting is that in the last month – there, this the implication is that the discussion about sort of late term abortion legislation in places like New York um, and Virginia, in particular, has that changed the national conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, they've shown a big change in uh, the views of those under the age of forty five. Um, they showed a really big shift where in January sixty five percent said they were pro choice, and now it's basically split down the middle. They also showed a pretty big shift among Democrats, where previously it had been 75 percent of Democrats saying they're pro-choice, 61 percent now saying it. Now, there is a very important caveat here. I think this is I would direct all of our listeners to David Byler, formerly of the Weekly Standard, now of The Washington Post, his excellent analysis of this, which is this is just one poll. 
This does not mean that America has dramatically changed its attitudes on the issue of abortion overnight, that there has been a long and consistent pattern over many years of Americans sort of preferring to call themselves pro-choice over pro-life. So one, he says the first law of polling analysis is never jump to conclusions based on one poll. And two, he says you always have to think of the sponsor of the poll as context, right? In the same way that if we on this show had a poll from Planned Parenthood saying, look, Americans are all pro-choice, I would go, allow me to raise just a brief red flag that this is a, you know, and so the same thing applies on the other side, right? Knights of Columbus is a Catholic organization. Um, And so in Byler's piece, he says, I tend not to use polls in which an interested party is the sponsor um, because it's not always reliable. Um, He says, not everyone avoids these polls as I do and not every sponsored poll is bad. But as a general rule, I would advise you to at least mentally discount the results or be generally more skeptical than you might be. I'm fascinated that this is a partnership with Marist, however, that it's not just like they went off on their own and just went with a kind of no-name pollster to do this. This is... I, I they have been sponsoring this research in partnership with Marist going back many months, it seems. Um, the other thing they ask is they ask some questions about which comes closest to your opinion on abortion. Um, when should it be available? Uh, and this, they, there's slightly less of a shift here. Um, they they have sort of presented a graphic that brackets it to show 80 percent say that abortion should be allowed either only during the first three months of pregnancy or less. Um, in our in our, you know, the general social survey has sort of frames it differently and finds a l- more openness to abortion, not in all circumstances, but in, I think, a wider range. Of so I'm going to come back to all that. But first, if we had a second show that was just like Margie and Kristen talk about tables and charts, I think this one might be <laughs> a contender for that alternative show. Yeah. Just because it's like showing the two polls. Polls, not P-O-L-L-S, but P-O-L-E. So available to a woman at any time during pregnancy, allowed only. Wait, no, I'm looking at this wrong. But no, should never be. Okay, the way they've color coded this is confusing to me in a way. They're sort of, they've they've color coded allowing abortion during the first three months of pregnancy in what looks like their pro-life bucket, which is not a position that most in the pro-life movement hold. So it's. I, I think the reason why they're bucketing them this way is to make the case that more people second are. or third, like because that's the issue that's been in the news more. But I agree with you that I think it is a confusing well, right? And also, chart. I mean, if we're going to the wording as opposed to the chart, it's you know you have all these things about only allow only this. They are phrased in the in as the as folks on the right would phrase them. They are not phrased of like. You know, in the way that you would if you were trying to also explore some of these same legal issues but have a more inclusive, expansive view, like allow women who are, you know, who are facing, you know, uh, um, uh, terminal birth defects and their children, you know, some other you – know, they are not explained in that way. They are explained and allow only in these cases as opposed to allow in these cases. So I think that – I don't know how that changes well, in, the results. In a way, but it is, I would almost – The way it's phrased is, is – is harsher than I think a lot of folks might listen to these well, questions. What, but interestingly, I would almost think if you were if you were trying to put your thumb on the scale and get more people to support uh, 
restrictions, then then having a more harshly worded question almost wouldn't be the way that you would go, right? That- so, so all right, so let me just back up. So my first thought about this is the use of the pro-choice and pro-life, which is what a lot of articles on this have talked about. Like, are these labels still, let's, before we go into the details, are these labels still the way that people sort themselves? They are obviously still in use and they have tracking, right? So I can see why someone would want to track how people view pro-choice versus pro-life. But like when we talk about stronger gun control or stronger gun laws or making guns, you know, harder to get, you don't know exactly what policies people are talking about. They are talking about the concept and what their sense of what the concept is, not we don't know what the actual policies are. That doesn't mean that the label is not useful as a thing to explore how people frame it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, these labels have a direct correlation to a specific policy. That's the, you know, first mm-hmm. thing that is, you know, that strikes me that we just need to be cognizant of. And the other thing is, you know, there's constantly like it, like when we talk about presidential polling, like the polls that are outliers of where voters are normally get a lot more press. Like often there'll be a poll that will show there's more people in support of abortion rights or opposed to abortion rights. And it'll be a couple points from the last poll. And that will get a lot more news than the one that shows that there's not much of a change and that I've seen that whether it's Gallup or Knights of Columbus right I've seen that kind of coverage on this on this piece the other thing is I just find the you know the interpretation that this change comes from like a couple state issues which I don't mean to diminish these were you know these, there were big issues there was a Supreme Court case there were a couple of state issues you know it was something that you know has gotten coverage for people who follow this it seems like a very big jump to be the the interpretation as to what happened, especially if you see that big jump among Democrats and younger people who I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I don't know, I don't have the data in front of me, that it may be a sample fluctuation of younger people and Democrats causing this as opposed to younger people and Democrats changing their minds substantially based on you know, what they're hearing about a bill in Virginia. That, that to me, seems not like the simplest explanation of what's going on. It seems like the simplest explanation is sample variance. Well, and, and there there is not a question in here that asks people, have you seen, read, or heard right. anything? Or at least that's not disclosed in the charts that I've seen. Um, it, it, so it could be the case we just, one data point is not enough to tell you. Um, and I, I think David's, uh, he had like a small tweet sequence about this or there was a tweet where he said basically look any any new trend line does begin with an outlier that like an outlier is only an outlier until a couple other polls show the same thing and then it's not an outlier anymore but for the moment this is the only data point we have and that there's lots of other things whether it's pew data etc that have shown these numbers being really consistent for a really long time um so we you can't say Oh, look, the news cycle of the last couple of weeks has shamed has 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 changed the debate on this um, by like, you know, a 10 plus point swing. It could be. But one one poll alone is not enough to draw that kind of conclusion. Right. Right. And so the thing with the specific policy piece is I haven't seen a question that has like a six point different scale of different policies. And, you know, these policies, I, I should say, I mean, you know, there's they aren't completely mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, you you can I mean, allowed only to save the life of the mother, for example, could happen at any time in pregnancy. So they're not mutually exclusive yeah. categories. And do you get I mean, this was 
what I was sort of bit the point I was badly making earlier. Do you get more people being at the kind of the the stronger end of the scale because there are so many they could pick this one category that's allow it or they could pick a variety, you know, they have a whole range of categories presented to them. Does that change the answer to say like okay, well you have one sort of you know, on the left side and you have four or five, six options on the right, is it just make it easier for somebody to pick something because of the way the question is set up on the right as on the right hand side of the debate as opposed to something where you have what I've seen is a four point scale or a three point scale. Yep. So you, you know, you're generally in favor of abortion rights, you're generally opposed, or you know, you're opposed but you feel that it's not something for the government to decide. That's the three point, or then you have four point like Allowing most or all, allowing some, don't allow in some, you know, don't don't allow in any. What might be an interesting way to for any other pollsters out there who want to tackle this to do it would be to break it up by trimester. But and then within that, the response options are the circumstances so that the time you're like removing the the time as a variable in the mix, because you're right. These things are not all mutually exclusive. Right. So it could be. In the first trimester, under what circumstances, if any, would you do you believe abortion should be allowed? Under any circumstance in the first month, women should be able to choose. Uh, only in cases of X, only in cases of Y, under no circumstances. And then you say, in the second trimester, which circumstances? And then in the third trimester, which circumstances? And you could have something like terminal, you know, the doctors believe that, that there's a terminal birth defect or something like that. Right. And you could see... Do people think, okay, well, in the first trimester, I'm okay with it, but by the time you get to the third, I'm not? Or do they think, no, actually, that's the only one I think is okay in the third? Like, if you actually broke it into three different questions and just saw how the response options changed over from trimester to trimester, or maybe they don't change at all, that, to me, would tell this story in a more valuable way. Well, it would certainly be more like... You know, the categories, the answer categories would be more. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be as much overlap or like. Right. And, you know, and what is missing that we would test that is not in here. I don't know if they tested it and didn't release it. It's something about like, who who should decide this? Should it be you responded or should it be the woman who's having the abortion or, or and their doctor? Like the the value behind it of like whose responsibility is this? Is this something that that is for the government, for all of us to decide who who gets to have an abortion or is this something that people should decide privately in a medical capacity? Well, if you're going to do that, though, then you also have to ask about the other entity involved, which but this is me putting my pro-life hat on for a second, that, that there's another entity involved. Sure. And so, you know, you could ask that battery of questions yeah, uh, as well. No, but. It, it, fair enough. This question, these questions get it like, OK, you you know, you are the decision. It, it stipulates that you are the decision maker as a respondent of like every, you know, of all the different scenarios, as opposed to getting into that conversation with is, is this actually up to you slash government? Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, there's some big news in the polling methodology world. Pew Research Center is making a big switch into the online polling world. We will talk about why when we come back. All right. We're- Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. 
Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Back. And this was a very depressing, if unsurprising, development in the wonderful world of polling response rates. Uh, Pew Research Center has been doing fabulous uh, work tracking just how few people in America actually take telephone polls. They've been tracking this going back decades. And there was a really steep decline in polling response rates starting in the late 90s. You used to have about 36 percent of people in 1997 who would take a poll. That fell pretty dramatically was, over the course know, of the next. I'm old enough to remember the beginning of that. The glory days? Yeah. You've done surveys that had 30% response rates? My God, what was it like, Margie? All, what was it like on the other side? All, <laughs> this was probably like one of my most popular tweets in a while was, you know, when that meme, Twitter meme, like what's something that, you know, without saying how old you are, people people would get a sense of how old you are and people today wouldn't understand. And it was 100% landline surveys oh, with high response God. rates. I know. It's an extra time. nerdy, extra nerdy. Um, yeah. But so these, so the response rates fell. They fell to like 9% in 2012-ish. And then I remember giving a presentation, I think in like spring of 2014, where they had released another data point that sort of showed it had leveled off, that like it hit 9%, and then it pretty much just stayed there. And when Pew updated their research again in 2016, that's what they found again. Okay, we hit 9%, but like 9% might be rock bottom. It wasn't. <laughs> We're now down to 6%. 6% response rates in telephone polls. And frankly, I mean, the, the my tweet on this was that it is a miracle that polling is as Accurate as it is, considering that only 6% response rates is now the norm. And frankly, I have seen polls that I have done where, depending on how good your voter file is that you're calling off of or things, I mean, the response rate can be even lower than that. Like if you're doing just an RDD, I mean, whew. So... I used to yeah. have unrelated sort of. I used to have a chart that I would show, and it was the length of a soundbite, like of a po- politician's soundbite, and it kind of looked just like this chart. Like it was once, you know, forty-five seconds or ninety seconds or whatever it was, and now it is, you know, like <laughs> three or four words. <laughs> like that's it. Like it's now eight seconds or ten seconds or something like that, and then they stopped making. They, it had hit bottom. So whoever was making that chart stopped making them because there was <laughs> nobody could talk any faster there's no one else no one else out there that was it um so yeah the 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 analysis they say and i'm just going to quote straight from Pew's report as they say among the factors depressing participation in telephone polling may be the recent surge in automated telemarketing calls particularly to cell phones i have had to block a lot of garbage lately especially text messages from mike pence asking me to donate to the I don't get those. Not going to work, Mikey. Quit texting me. I don't know how you got my number. And when I find out, I'm going to be pissed. (laughs) Thank you, next. 
Um, they said the volume of robocalls has skyrocketed in recent years, reaching an estimated $3.4 billion per month. Since public opinion polls typically appear as an unknown or unfamiliar number, they are easily mistaken for telemarketing appeals. In addition, new technology sometimes erroneously flags survey calls, even those conducted by things like the CDC, as spam. Numerous cell phone operating systems, cellular carriers, and third-party apps block incoming phone numbers or warn users that incoming numbers are from potential scammers, fraudsters, or spammers. So the bad guys out there have ruined it for the good guy pollsters that just want to do their research. Good gals, too. Yep. Well, yes, I, I use that in it. I use guys in a gender, yes. a non-gendered way. Yes. Uh, th- this is, I mean, this yeah. is why Stops the FCC. scammy. Yeah, generally just stop scamming people. But yeah. this is why the FCC has regulations about robocalls and that you can't auto dial you're supposed to not be able to auto dial a cell phone i think gallup settled like some yes. really expensive lawsuit over this even claiming that like they didn't do anything wrong but they were just settling the lawsuit to get right. it out remember of remember we had a guest who said the, they thought the rule was going to be you couldn't even use anything that could be an auto dialer to yeah that call, that was going to suddenly call dial. centers were going to couldn't hand dial people out. with something that could be used as an auto dialer which seemed a little extreme as our guest had pointed out that would leave only rotary phones. Yes. <laughs> Which, <laughs> do I need to go? I'm going to go down to Miss Pixie's on 14th Street and see if they got any rotary phones over there. I, I am old snag. enough to remember rotary phones as well. Um, yes. Like those funny, like I occasionally show my kids like videos of kids trying to play around with old technology <laughs> equipment and there's, you know, kids, <laughs> kids picking up rotary phone and like, what is this thing? You know. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, the uh, all of the garbage out there has made people think that polls are garbage too, and they're not taking them. Yes, yeah, so, so it's Hughes taking the lead, moving. Time. Yes, moving things to online. Now they also wrote. Uh, so Courtney Kennedy, friend of the show, has written yeah. an ana- written, wrote up an analysis of like, well, what does this mean now? Because Pew has this rich trove of data collected largely from telephone interviews going back decades. If the methods change. Are the trend lines, if there's a shift in the trend line, how much of that shift is because views have changed versus how much of that shift is because the methods are changing? Is this apples to apples or is it apples to oranges? Or is it gala apples to Granny Smith apples? Mm. Like they're both still apples. They're just different. Well, Ish. I mean, um, it depends. Although I guess that would just be apples to apples. Well, <laughs> I mean, I guess. Falling apart. And maybe this is in the report here somewhere. Well, first of all, folks who were landline only may move to cell phone. I mean, the fact that it was a landline survey years ago does not mean that it was incor- an incorrect assessment then. And I think Pew has been changing the percentage of their work that's been online, right? It's not like they just went one day from live calls to mm-hmm. – to 100% online. They've been sort of making this change. We've talked about this before and how their trend panel has been upping the percent that's online for a while and upping the percent that's on cells too. They've been changing that. I mean, that's the other piece of this too is cells are so expensive that that has pushed, I think, some of this work, not just Pew, but in general online because you could keep increasing the percent of cells and then you would, because of the regulations, you would end up becoming you know, cost prohibitive for not for Pew in particular, but for other folks. I um, will tell you what, if I never had to field a telephone survey again, I would get more sleep at night. Like the scariest emails I ever get are from my call center folks being like, 
hey, that survey we timed out for you at 10 minutes, it's actually taking 18 minutes to take. Because then you're like, well, great, my firm's not going to make, my firm is going to lose money on this project now because the call center bill is going to come back exorbitant because people are taking their sweet dang time to take my telephone survey. Right, right, right. And, uh. and online, it's like, can we squeeze one more question in there? You're like, sure. It adds an extra five seconds to the field time. It's cool. Instead of like a minute. Yeah. So You're not like counting each word, you know, taking out like past tense in order just to shave out a little yeah. stuff in your survey. <laughs> just shave a, squeeze out a couple minutes. I, I welcome yeah. our new online survey overlords. <laughs> and I was actually laughing. But it's just tough to do in... Like oh, political polling districts, is legislative districts, city council districts. I mean, you can, you know, it's just it's just tough. There. One of the total unrelated sidebars of one of the podcasts I like listening to is The Watch, which is a pop culture, a TV pop culture mm-hmm. podcast um, by The Ringer, and it was Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, and they were talking about the Oscars. And views toward Green Book, I think. Yeah. And controversial. Like, on the episode, they one of them made a joke and called the other one like, so what are you, YouGov now? And I like almost drove off the road. I was like, wait a minute. The streams wow. have crossed. They're talking about YouGov on Whoa. the watch. Holy Moses. Uh, so anyways, look, online polling, it's, it's sweeping the nation. It's sweeping the globe, guys. Get on board the train. Unless you're running for like state legislature, Online in which polling. case more I, popular I mean, than Green Book. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so the, the last point on this is that Pew, the way they're going to start doing their trend lines, it looks like they have provided an example where they're going to have a dotted line represent mm. the piece of the trend line that shows the change in survey mode. So that it's it's saying, look, the question wording was the same. But during in between these two dots, we actually shifted how we did the research. So, so we don't can, know if this is a trend or just a mode shift. And then the line becomes solid again for subsequent data points, all using the same method. That to me, since we're constantly giving graphic design criticism yes. on this show, that's like, good. Kudos, it's like a little flag, you know. There, one, it's literally telling you we don't know if there is a straight line between these two points but it's Mm -hmm. also like a visual flag like hello do you see these dots this is a reminder so you don't you're not kind of looking into the the footnotes of the chart to figure out what the story is there's a little like blinking sign yeah literally that says look here we changed the mode so kudos to you guys at pew for doing this and by the way oh can i can i make a brief um patting my my own firm on the back for a second thing. Yeah. Just briefly. Yeah. So since we're talking about innovation in the polling space, this past week was the Reed Awards, which is Campaigns and Elections Magazine's uh, awards that they give to various firms. I have never applied. Like, we've never put our work forward for something like this. But this year, one of our team members was like, I'm going to fill out the packet. We're going to apply. We're going to show off our work. And don't you know it, we won the Reed Award for Innovation in Polling. So Echelon Insights, finally a Reed Award winner. I have to buy a trophy oh, case yes, for I our want, office. That's very exciting. I saw, congrats. We've never, we, this is our first, I, yeah, find, I not, have to buy a trophy case. That's great. So Way Innovation in Polling, 
It's the cool new thing, guys. That is really get on board. My husband won a couple read awards. It's very exciting. So, um, well, congrats to there's all the read, your read awards, awards and there's, and there's the, the Polly's. The Polly's are in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. March, I think they're in Napa. And I think we applied for some of those too. So. Wow, this is new. You're not. Yeah, I know. Like, Echelon's not normally. I know we don't normally play this game, but we're we're in, man. We're well, that's in. good because people are con- You know, sometimes people kind of like back channel to get to you, you know, and the people are like, can Kristen come speak at, you know, whatever. So I often get like, can Kristen come speak at the polys? Kristen can come to speak at the reads. And and I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll get back to you. you know? <laughs> like, I don't think that's the read awards were down in Austin. If I had really like focused, I might have been well, like, I don't well, know shoot, if I got one about go. the reads, but anyway, but so but I yeah. do get that. So now I will say, why, well, yes, here is her email. And then I'm, a, I, I'm a good gatekeeper because there are definitely, you know, you have a lot of Democratic fans well, mama, and I usually keep them, <laughs> some of them at bay. Although I do have one I need to send to you when we wrap. Well, you, the, the, this is my terrible transition to our next topic, but you understand that like getting on a plane and traveling somewhere to go speak or sit on a panel, it takes a lot of work. You know what it also does? It means you have less time for taking a nap. Yes. Unless you sleep. On the plane. Can you sleep on planes? Yes, I can, I can sleep. It is, in a sense, like I saw this and I thought, you know, this should be the thing I give advice when people are like, how, what advice do you have for someone who wants to, God forbid, become a political consultant? I should say, <laughs> don't learn, learn to sleep Step on one, a, don't. <laughs> learn to sleep on a plane. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, it is not, it's just not possible if you can't sleep on a plane. So, um, I, when I went, um, when I, so a couple weeks ago when I was in Vegas and I had to come back, I took the red eye, I had to change my flight because my dad was sick and I went straight, for, you know, to the airport and I had to do a change because there wasn't like a good red eye direct. Um, and I like completely crashed out at Del- Dallas, like at, like six in the morning, but on my, but waiting for my connection, <laughs> like full, like, I mean, I wasn't on the floor, but I was on, I, I could put my head on my lap. App, which makes it really much more comfortable because then your your brain is like I am on a pillow in bed, you know. And <laughs> and they had boarded the whole plane, and the gate person was like, "Man!" And I purposely sat right next to, like, right as close to the door as I could. I'm like, I may fall asleep, and I want to make sure it is clear that I'm waiting for this flight. And I <laughs> and I almost thought about like telling somebody. I don't know. I I was like making bad decisions, but thankfully somebody said, "Are you here for oh, this good. plane?" Yes. So I looked like. The person in this picture. This is not one of our. This this is the bottom barrel of methodological. It's like a view. It's like a reader quiz that has like two hundred respondents. But it's, it's not really a thing. Oh, it, but it's to celebrate National Public Sleeping Day. <laughs> and the picture yeah. in this article is like a a woman passed out in a lawn chair by a classic car. I mean, hey, I guess if you want to sleep outside at a classic car show, like. I mean, you do you, man. That, that's you know, there are worse ways to spend the Saturday, I think. But um, I am in favor of catching a little snooze where you can at the beach, at a festival, at a concert, at the airport, wherever you may be. I am in favor of it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at falling asleep if I if I need to. the The only time that I actually, it's only in instances when I need to sleep that I have trouble sleeping. Like yeah. if I'm like, oh, I've, I'm on the red eye going home. Right. And I think I must sleep on this flight or else I will not have slept. And then my brain is like, yeah, are you going to sleep? Are you going to sleep now? 
Have you slept? Are you sleeping now? Nope. You're still awake? You're still awake? Well, that's a bummer. Right. You should go to sleep, Kristen. You really should go to sleep. It's like, oh my God, stop. No. I need to go to sleep. And like all I can hear is like the whir of the plane engine. And I'm like, oh no. Whereas on flights when I am like need to get work done, all of a sudden like I'll wake up and the drink cart has already gone past. And I'm like, whoa. I yeah. thought we were still on the ground. Yeah. That's what a, happened? That is a delight. How did we get when here? When you wake up and you're already in flight and you fell asleep before takeoff, that's a delight. Or if you fall asleep before takeoff, this is the holy grid. Fall asleep before takeoff and then fall asleep when you land and you're like, I've hit the jackpot. That doesn't happen very often. What I Here's what the opposite of jackpot. When they take all my money, I guess, is the opposite of jackpot. It's when I try to sleep and some idiot is like thinks I've like – just passed out, you know, even though I'm just sort of comfortably asleep with my head in my lap. And they're like, ma'am, 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 are you okay? <laughs> like, Has that ever happened? Oh, my gosh, all the time. And oh, I just my God. And just like, and just, no. and just go crazy. I'm like, no, I, I'm no, always no, like no. snarling, like, I'm sleeping. Well, you Do look, you look like you're in medical distress when no, you're asleep? I mean, not many people, I guess, can put their head on their lap. But still, like, if you were, oh. if you were sick, I mean, if you still couldn't put your head on your lap, you would still not be able to do that. Like, if you're, if you were not, if that was going to be a not thing, your hamstrings would allow, you would already not be doing it. I think. Well, this is why we all need to be in as good a shape as Margie's in because I'm no, trying to genetic. think about anyway. Can I lay on my own lap? Hang on. Can you not do it? No. Well, my eye just made contact with my knee, so I guess that kind of works. That would not work on an airplane. <laughs> I would look like I was in medical distress, and people around me would go, Kristen! I did kind of worry lady, about you miss, for a second. Miss, are you okay? Are you okay? No, I can do a full, like, you know, head. It is a bed. It, for all intents and purposes, it's a bed. It becomes a bed. That, that's convenient. I mean, the only thing preventing it from being a bed is the fact that now the flights are planes are so small that I don't have this. You know, there's not enough space. Yeah, because the, the seat is, comes into the middle of your lap. Anyway, that's well. If you see Margie out on a plane, <laughs> she's don't talk to me. Folded in one, half. Don't talk to me. Origami style. <laughs> she's just. I'm just sleeping. sleeping. I'm just celebrating. Sleeping in public day. Okay, what's on the trend line this week? Uh, I'm going to be talking to the folks at Nielsen about their research on millennial news consumption. Um, I'm going to be doing, I've got two interviews booked as well. One with uh, Tim Carney, my editor at the Washington Examiner. He's got a book, Alienated America, about uh, declining connections in communities and how that might be feeding social challenges and uh, what we can do to fix it. Uh, and then, so it's kind of um, uh, Bowling Alone meets J.D. Vance, maybe. So listen to learn more. And then um, we have Congressman Brian Mast booked to talk um, about veterans issues. So hopefully he'll be able to join us. I'm always skeptical of teasing elected official yeah. interviews before they happen because sometimes votes happen and craziness ensues yeah. and you never know. But um that's what's on the docket. Cool. Well, you can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters, individually at at Margie O'Meara and at K. Soltis Anderson. You can find us on Facebook or you can find us at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.